Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that us humans may have magnetoreception abilities that we don't even know about. Maybe not to the extent of magneto in X-Men, but a new analysis of our brainwaves when surrounded by different magnetic fields suggests that we do have a sixth sense for magnetism. And birds, fish, and a few other creatures can sense Earth's magnetic field and use it for navigation. But we haven't been able to prove whether humans have that kind of ability or not. And now by exposing people to Earth-strength magnetic field pointed in different directions in a lab, researchers from the U.S. and Japan discovered distinct brainwave patterns occur in response to rotating the field a certain way. The study was just stimulating the effect of someone turning in different directions in Earth's natural unchanging field without requiring the participant to actually move. And by holding people still when that happened, they prevented motor control thoughts from tainting the brainwaves from the magnetic field. Researchers compared those EEG readouts from those control trials where the magnetic field inside the chamber didn't move. And they found that your alpha brainwaves do change based on the field. So there's evidence that you do subconsciously respond to Earth's magnetic field, but we don't yet know why or how your brain does that. And we don't even know for sure how your brain detects the Earth's magnetic field, which is kind of cool. There are some ancient practices that recommend you align your bed one way or another for the best possible sleep, and it makes me wonder. Maybe they knew something or noticed something that we're just now re-noticing, until uh, more research is complete, I still don't know where to put the head of my bed. But if you know, post it in the notes. <laughs> what if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. On today's show, I have a wonderful guest who just came off stage at the sixth annual biohacking conference, uh, which was held at the Beverly Hilton in Beverly Hills. 
It's Dr. Dan Siegel who talked about science and the practice of presence at the conference. And I'm recording the episode with him now because I wanted all of you who are listening and couldn't make it to the conference to get the benefit of Dan's two decades of teaching clinical psychiatry at UCLA. Dan's the co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Institute at UCLA and founder and director of the Mindsight Institute. And he talks about a field that I am just a huge fan of called interpersonal neurobiology, which is the understanding of the mind and mental health and how mindfulness helps people process emotions, enhance relationships, and physically change their brains. Best-selling author, co-author of more than a dozen books for adults, parents, and teachers, and a huge number of books for clinical psychiatrists. So today we're going to talk about how his work in the past led to his newest discoveries and his new book, Awareness, and about your two levels of consciousness, one of which you probably don't even know about. Dan, it's a great honor to have you on the show. Dave, it's a pleasure to be here with you, and thanks for a great conference. Oh, uh, much much appreciated. I believe it was the best we've done so far, which uh, which made me really happy. Now, I love to know when someone gets to be uh, preeminent in their field, uh, the the top of their game, a uh, little nod to Game Changers, my last book about the podcast. Why did you decide to go into clinical psychiatry? I mean, is this is this because you were traumatized? Because you thought you were crazy? You know, that's a common answer, right? Amongst your peers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, like what of all the things you could know with your life, you went deep on this on this topic. What drove you there? Yeah. Well, it's a really interesting question, and starting with the notion of game changing is is a really fascinating way to approach it. You know, what happened with me was I was very interested in people and life and biology. And so after studying biochemistry and I, I dove into a lot of things like looking at enzymes and also working on a suicide prevention service, I thought medicine would be a great way to combine all those different interests. And when I was in medical school, it, it was really emotionally very, um, disturbing because my professors who were really caring and smart people uh, seemed to treat patients as if they had no internal mental life, no feelings, no meaning of the illnesses that they were being diagnosed with. They were told they were dying. Physicians, my teachers would just tell them this fact and then walk away. And when I would say, hey, you know, don't you want to talk to them about how they feel? They would say, well, why? Well, I was like, meet robots, basically. Well, kind of. I mean, so I dropped out of school. You know, I had always wanted to be a pediatrician, but I didn't want to become a physician like that. So in that time away, I never thought I'd go back. But in that time away, you know, I journeyed around and actually ended up in Vancouver Island, really reflecting a lot on what was the meaning of life and why was I here on the planet and what could I do? I made a decision after that period of being away to go back and consider the idea that the mind, our inner mental life of feelings and thoughts and meanings and the stories about who we are, all these things that are our inner mental world were actually real, even though you couldn't see them with a, a scan of any sort, electroencephalogram, you doesn't see the mind, it sees activity of the brain. Um, and so I went back uh, saying this word mindsight, that you could see the mind. And even if my professors didn't, it didn't mean that they were correct. So I stayed in medicine and um, 
initially went into pediatrics and when I left pediatrics and went into psychiatry, it was with this kind of passion and sense of purpose to say, medicine needs to have mindsight, needs to see the mind, or it would be just like robots dealing with, you know, bags of biochemicals, which the mind tells us we are much more than just what happens as chemical reactions. And so that's what started back in the 80s. And, um, you know, I've been sticking with it ever since. And that's kind of what's driven me all these years. It was just that shock of watching a doctor go in and say, you're going to die. See ya. You know, See ya. Golf, basically. Well, exactly. And, you know, here's the thing. I was at a research institution and um, these are really smart, accomplished physicians. So as a young person, I was in my early 20s, you know, I wanted to fit in and be a good student. And the more I tried to fit into that system, the more disconnected and robotic my inner experience became. And I really didn't like who I was becoming. And that's why I dropped out. When I came back, I had to have a kind of fortitude to try to say, well, if I keep the word mindsight in the front of my mind, no matter what this medical world is like, no matter how they're trying to shape students to be just like them, these professors, um, I could hopefully make it through. And that was itself a challenge in addition just to finishing medical school. Um, and, you know, I'm I'm really impressed with people who, uh, let's say, patients who can try to stand up for themselves and say, you know, something, you can't just treat me like this. And so it, it was a way when I entered psychiatry to keep with this notion that the mind is not only real, but it's really important. And um, that's kind of what I've been doing in this field of interpersonal neurobiology is to say, how do we look at the connection among three basic things? The mind, our embodied brain, meaning the functions of our body, biochemical functions, physiological functions, neural functions, and our relationships with other people and nature, with you know, with the planet. And these three things, mind, embodied brain, and relationships, form the foundation for how we try to understand what life on earth is about what human life is and how we can try to direct it in a way that supports well-being and whether it's at our annual conference in interpersonal neurobiology or the books or the conversation you and i are having right now we try to stay grounded in science but not limited to what any given scientific field suggests so we we try to combine all the fields of science from math and physics all the way to sociology and anthropology into one framework. That's what interpersonal neurobiology basically is. For people listening to the show, they definitely know why I'm a fan of interpersonal neurobiology, because it's the cross-discipline understanding of you know what makes us human that drives biohacking as well and what we can do about it. And interpersonal neurobiology drives to help people understand or scientists and, and clinicians understand what's going on in the brain and our subjective experience of what happens with that and how your experiences change the brain. How much of interpersonal neurobiology tells you what to do to make your brain behave itself? Well, it's really interesting. When you take a step back from any one branch of science, let's say neuroscience, and ask questions like, how does the mind relate to the brain or in larger biological terms, what is the mind's role in human evolution? Or in even larger terms, you know, what is the mind 
playing a part in in our relationships with each other and with nature, you come to some ways of answering that. So interpersonal neurobiology does say that well-being is derived from a process that we simply call integration, where you're allowing things to be different and then linking them. So whether that's in the brain in your head or your brain in your body or your relationships with a loved one or your family, you know, like your kids, you know, so for parenting or teaching or or, you know, when we look at issues of climate change and the way human beings have shaped what's called the Anthropocene era, all these things show basically the following simple, simple roadmap. When things are going well, they're in a state of harmony. When things are, aren't going well, they're either in chaos or rigidity or some combination of both. And in biohacking, I don't know if you find this pattern, but it would tell you that, gosh, if I'm, let's say, having an autoimmune problem, you know, I'm having chaos being uh, wreaked upon my body. And this ravaging of my body by my own immune system is a form of chaotic intrusion of a system that's usually in harmony. And then you would look for ways in which integration was not happening. And you could study that in all sorts of ways um, in terms of physiology. The same thing would be true, let's say, in terms of a person being isolated. So what's cool about um, the way you might bring biohacking into an interpersonal neurobiology frame is to say that the mind is not just the brain, it's our relationships also. So then how do you make sure a person has meaningful, mutually rewarding relationships with with other people, with um, other organisms, with nature? And then you would you would show that this relational life we have is probably in science terms the most robust predictor of your health it's a beautiful way of putting it and i have uh, over the last 20 or so years of looking at this problem it's it's kind of tough because you look at well the sun eventually starts everything but the quality of the soil around you has a huge impact on how much emotional stress you're going to have at the end of the day because if it's degraded, the environment, the atmosphere is degraded, your food quality is degraded. When your food quality is degraded, you have physiological stress. When your body feels stressed, you feel emotional stress and you probably blame your spouse, right? And your cognitive <laughs> performance goes down and, and you get yeah. this whole thing you're like, God, where do you start with that? But the bottom line is it's a big system with huge feedback loops. So you look at the biggest feedback loops and you look at what's most broken and you decide you're going to track that and then you decide you're going to hack that. But there's no way to isolate a single variable in a constantly changing dynamic system, which is why so much of medicine would say, I'm going to remove all the variables I thought of. I'm going to pretend like I removed all the variables I didn't think of, like the phase of the moon, like the gender of the lab assistant, and all the other weird stuff that's never accounted for, but somehow was always the same. Yeah. Uh, and then I'm going to find the one thing that mattered, even though that's not how the world seems to work. Well, exactly. I mean, exactly. And, you know, it's really... Uh I think important about the systems approach you're mentioning is a lot of people, a lot of scientists are trained in linear thinking, not systems thinking. And even how we're encouraged in school to just focus on the correct answer to, to linear kinds of questions like, uh, Dave, what's the answer to this? Seven plus eight equals what? And you know, there's an answer, 15. Well, it may be the correct answer and everything that happens in school reinforces certainty. But when you look at systems seeing, systems sensing, systems perceiving, you have to drop into a kind of state of uncertainty and allow the interconnectedness of what's going on 
to just come to you. Sometimes it's a gut feeling, sometimes a heartfelt sense. And what's really interesting about that from a scientific point of view is in this practice we did at the conference, the Wheel of Awareness, you can show that there's kind of two realms of reality that physicists talk about. But from a biological point of view, you can see it in terms of the bodies we live in. One of those realms is like Dave is there, Dan is here, and we have separate noun-like bodies that define who we are. And okay, there's Dave and Dan, there's two things, and Dave plus Dan equals a conversation. Okay, that's a linear way of thinking about it. But a systems way of thinking about it is that you and I are not noun-like entities. We are more like verb, verb-like events that are deeply interconnected. So this conversation you and I are having for, let's say, another person in another body, in quotes, hearing this, the energy and information from our conversation can enter them, start leading to integrative changes we can talk about inside of their body, then the way they connect with a person next to them, a pet, you know, working on the soil around them, all these things, I'm, you know, uh, deeply sensitive to that because my daughter was a soil scientist. <laughs> no way. And, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, she works in environmental science. So, she would be really into this conversation, I think, um, you know, and in that work of systems viewing, you have to have the scientific rigor to say, I don't know, but there are many, many interactive elements that are profoundly interconnecting. And when you see things as verbs that way, it's a it's kind of a beautiful way to live because it's probably closer to the truth is one thing. But the other thing is then you drop into this realization you're not alone, you know, and you're deeply with a sense of belonging to a larger whole. And you don't get fooled by a noun like statement. You know, I am only Dan or I am only Dave, which has an incredible loneliness to it. You realize you're part of a continuum of interconnected events that unfold. And then what arises from it, this is from doing this with literally tens of thousands of people, this wheel of awareness practice you come to realize that from the awareness of this interconnection arises the feeling of love and this deep awareness that is open and receptive and has a kind of joy and gratitude to it. So these ways where even if you look at what you said with John Levy, you know, when you get happiness from expressing gratitude, it's really tapping into this larger space of articulating our deep interconnectedness. And I think that's why the research shows that relationships and the expression of gratitude are really the major forces of well-being. It seems like one of the basic human instincts and human fears is fear of being alone because we're sort of pack animals or whatever you want to call us, tribal, and yeah. you tend to get eaten by things when you're by yourself in the jungle or the desert or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So we're told on one hand, you're alone, every man is an island. Some people say no man's an island, but there's a lot of rugged individualism, especially in, in North America. It's kind of built into our national character. So you're alone, and being alone is a state of peril. What mm -hmm. is that doing to our, our psychology? Well, there's a number of ways of thinking about it. So at, this, at the most basic, let's start with math and physics. In math and physics, which I really think has a lot to contribute to our understanding of life and mind, what it means is you're an isolated system. And an isolated system 
can achieve the same kind of coherence and capacities that a more intricately interconnected system can involve. So from a basic physics level, if you see mind as an emergent property of energy, which is what I've been teaching for over a quarter century, you know, then you actually tap into the deepest way of responding to that question is that it's better together. Let me just put it that way, you know? And so that's the math reason for it. The biological reason is exactly like you're saying. We are a social species. Mammals are primates, very much so human beings, especially so. And so we have deep systems within lower areas of the brain that are involved in survival that relate to areas slightly above those deep areas that are related to attachment that then are related to areas even above that that are related to a sense of um, identity. And when you put identity, attachment and survival together, it, it literally shapes the health of your body. So and it's very rewarding when you're connected to other people, it feels safe and it gives you a sense of I belong. Now, sadly, a lot of people don't belong these days and they don't feel like they belong, even though ultimately you can say everyone's a part of the system. But there there's disempowerment. There's ways people don't feel like they're connected. And ironically, with the Internet, the way it is, people are feeling less and less a part of a larger whole. And it's that being a part of a larger whole, that belonging, that is a deep source of nourishment and well-being. And so when you see people isolated or when they think in very linear terms, just think, oh, as long as I do X, Y and Z, I'm going to be okay if I do it on my own because this is, you know, a do it yourself approach. Well, no, actually, you, the word you is not a noun. It's actually a verb and it's a plural verb, not a singular isolated entity. So if you live like a singular isolated noun like thing, um, you're going to actually not be filled with the kind of fulfillment and well-being that feeling apart and being apart of a larger whole will bring you. What is the most effective way for someone who feels that they're alone? I mean, you look down, you can see where the edge of your skin is. Uh, you can decide whether you want to go to a, a you know group of people or not. So from all practical, logical appearances, you really are a separate entity. And you may or may not feel alone there. You may or may not feel loved. But what's the most practical way for someone to to perceive or become convinced that they are not alone or that they're a part of things, uh, especially for someone who's in a skeptical engineering like perspective, which is how I, yeah. you know, I started out my thing. I, I would have sworn up and down. No one wants to help me and I'm entirely alone. Everything I do is my responsibility. And, you know, I, I was perfectly blind uh, to mm -hmm. all the stuff you just said, although I am a full, like just my experience has taught me that that is the case. And I'm, I'm very happy that I know that because, well, I perform better when I'm happier. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, how there do you, do you go. So first of all, embedded in your question is the answer. You know, how do you convince people you have them perceive it, not just tell them about it? So in your in your statement is the actual answer. Now, how do you help them perceive it? There you that's, go. Yeah, that's the real question. <laughs> right. Um, so let me give you just a story to start out how to answer this. I was doing a workshop in Seattle and uh, doing the Wheel of Awareness meditation that we can talk about and that's in the book Aware and the um, meditation was offered. Then there was a break. People went out and it was at Seattle Needle and they went out into the park like area around the, the big structure there. And then they came back and the first person to take the microphone during the discussion period 
takes a microphone, and this is all public, so I can talk about it. And he says, um, I'm a 70-year-old Microsoft just-retired engineer. My wife dragged me to hear you talk about this stuff. I've never meditated in my life, never had therapy before in my life, <laughs> and she just didn't want me being at home. She's a therapist. And now he starts to cry. Wow. Yeah. And he slowly says, I don't know what happened, but when I did the wheel of awareness practice and did the part where you bend the spoke around into the hub of awareness itself, something changed in me. And I went out during the break. And then he says very slowly, but I'll say it quickly for the sake of time. Very slowly, he basically says that he sees a gardener with a hose watering the roses and there are butterflies and birds. And now he's full on crying in front of 500 people who also are just speechless. And he says, we are all one. I am the butterfly. We are the birds. We are the water. We're the gardener. And, you know, you could say, well, Dan, you hypnotized him, but there was no hypnosis. It was dropping him into pure awareness where this state of, there are two realms we live in. People don't realize that, but there are two established realms in one reality. And I think what the wheel of awareness does is and I've done this now literally with 45,000 people and you you get this every time frequently um you know many people have this experience where you drop out of the you know what's called Newtonian classical physics realm and there was a cover story of Scientific American July 2018 right before aware came out you know which covered this fact that there are these two realms and how can we study the transition between the two of them is what the article was about. So I'm not just making this up. This is not just it, fantasy. Or it, it's a real thing. We, we know there's quantum physics. We know there's Newtonian physics. Yeah. We just didn't used to. So, we yeah. didn't used to, exactly. So the Newtonian level is a macro state, large object accumulation of stuff. It's actually accumulation of smaller units or quanta of energy. But in the macro state world, things are noun-like entities that seem separate. But in the not Newtonian macro state world, but the micro state quantum realm, you have event-like, deep, interconnected, verb-like things that are happening, processes. So for this Microsoft engineer, who never had this experience before in his life, he said, he was able to literally, like you're saying, Dave, perceive the reality of our interconnected nature, that instead of him being lost in the noun-like identity of just I'm this guy in this body as a 70 year old body. He actually came to realize the deeper micro state quantum view, if you will, of the interconnected verb like reality of who we are. Now, that has happened every time I do a workshop. And so the question is, what is that? And what I've tried to explore as a scientist is the possibility, it's a hypothesis that the origin of awareness itself, that hub that the Microsoft engineer was referring to, is for some reason not just awareness, but, and I did this in a parliament recently where a parliamentarian wouldn't speak until he was privately talking to me and said he felt this degree of love that he had never felt before, this degree of connection, just like the Microsoft engineer. And what I think that is, is this feeling of connection, this feeling of love, that arises is woven from the same fabric of where consciousness comes from. And here's the hypothesis that awareness comes from what the physicists call a quantum vacuum or a sea of potential. 
And when you look at the implications of that, it allows you to live from this, in this graph we have called the plane of possibility, in a way from a clinical point of view is incredibly useful. From a parenting point of view, it's really exciting how you try to get connected with your kids in that way. And from our conversation, I think that's what we need to do is give people access. It's a metaphor, the wheel, but to this hub that everyone's talking about, it's really this plane of possibility. And when you learn to live and lead and love and learn from the plane, life has a profound different quality to it. And it's a very practical thing. You saw this group, you know, at the, at the conference do it and you saw their response, even though it was a very short amount of time we, we could do it in. Um, and I was kind of blown away by the response because usually it's a longer setup to get everyone ready to do it. They just dove in. Well, you, and, you were presenting on, uh, I think it was day three, uh, right? Uh, uh, day two. Day, day two. two okay. Yeah. So, but yeah, uh, we had a series at the Bulletproof Conference or the, the Upgrade Labs Conference. We had a series of just really powerful speakers. We'd alternate between science and kind of spirit and emotion. So I think the audience was just so primed for the wheel of awareness that you brought, like your timing couldn't have been better. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Well, you can see that, and here's, you know, as I was walking around, you know, after that presentation, people would just come up to me with, you know, this very teary eyes and giving me huge hugs. And I, I think we're at a turning point for the human family, actually, yeah. to say, we've gotten lost in a delusion of Newtonian separateness that is not only making people unhappy, depressed, anxious, all the things that are not so good for our mental health, but it's actually destroying the planet because yeah. we treat the earth like a trash can. And so now we're at a moment literally in, you know, in, in, in our conference in April 26th, 28th, I'm bringing together you know, climate change scientists with mindfulness people Lovely. and all sorts of folks to teach people how to use these, um, this moment and these practices to dive into that wheels hub, the plane of possibility so that the direction we take as a human family, whatever we're doing, whether it's in organizations or governments or schools or at home or an organic farm or, you know, working, whatever we do in life, we need a turning point because the path we're on as a human family is not going well. I'm not saying anything new to anybody. And like Al Gore once said in a meeting I was at, he said, you know, the problem is people go from denial to despair in a nanosecond. So what we want to do is create that space where you can realize, okay, I was lost in a Newtonian noun-like delusion of separateness, even though that's how I see reality, it's actually a delusion, which in psychiatry, yeah. that's a psychotic belief, a false <laughs> belief, right? So that's why, you know, we want to look at things like, how do we do just what you're saying? How do we give people an opportunity, not just to hear this from Dave and Dan talking, but actually experience it yourself drop into that spaciousness. And here's the win-win-win situation. Your body will get healthier. So in terms of biohacking your body, having your mind release the delusion of I, me, mine is separate, research shows this, will improve all sorts of factors like reduce stress and improve immune function yeah. and even optimize telomerase levels. So in terms of literally the mechanisms, you're gonna do it. Do you know why? I, I have a theory. And in fact, do you, do you know the yeah, mechanism? what's your theory? Well, we, we wrote a paper with the, the leading researcher on telomerase. We wrote a paper uh, about our theory, but what, what's your thought about it? All right. It takes a substantial amount of energy. I'm a computer scientist but at my heart. Well, mm -hmm. maybe more than that, but that's at least part of what I am at my heart. 
uh, by training. Yeah. And it takes a lot of compute power to maintain a virtual reality. So maintaining that deception uses electrons that really could be used for lengthening telomeres, could be used for maintaining biological systems, folding proteins, removing things, doing making autophagy happen, all the biological things like that. So one way of increasing awareness is you incre- increase compute power by oh, eating the right stuff so your mitochondria work. But at the end of the day, wasting less cycles on useless virtual reality simulations of the world around you seems like it would take away from other repair systems. And what do you think? I think you're right on it. And it's completely consilient with what Alyssa Apple and I and Benjamin Nelson and oh, nice. Susan Parker wrote, which Alyssa's, is basically... Yeah, okay, Alyssa's been on the show. Okay, that's perfect. Oh, great. Yeah, well, our <laughs> paper uh, called something like the, the Science of Presence or something like that was exactly that. You know, basically what we said was when you enter this state of dropping into the deep interconnected reality of who you are, the system relaxes. And even Jim Cohen, C-O-A-N, has done some beautiful work about this. You know, Jim first hypothesized, as would be standard with neuroscience, you know, that if you're with a loved one who you're doing well with and you hold his or her hand when you're about to get a shock, a part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, is gonna become super active to minimize that shock coming into your brain. And so you'll see a lot of prefrontal activity, right? Mm-hmm. It's a pretty logical hypothesis. It was completely wrong. And Jim, who's a wonderful scientist at the University of Virginia, he found repeatedly that the brain gets super relaxed. It enters this incredibly open state of not firing off and using energy. And in fact, you should look at Jim's stuff and maybe even have him on your show. because oh, I'd love an intro. Because he, he, I will. I'll introduce you guys. First of all, you get along really well. But secondly, Jim's whole thing is about energy resource allocation oh, yeah. and has a beautiful neuroscience view of it. But in terms of this thing you're saying, it, it, Dave, it goes completely along with what you're saying. Because when you're with a loved one and you're in the ease of well-being, it's literally less neural firing. And it enters this open receptive state that, you know, and this is where it gets science meeting not only well-being and relationships, but even science meeting spirituality. It's as if you drop into a deeper interconnected reality so that, for example, one person doing this recently at a conference um, I was doing for Deepak Chopra. Um, Deepak had me do this wheel, you know, for as the main meditation. And so one of the people attending um I think it was sages and scientists, she lived in England. And she says, she says, um, Dan, you've got to come to Sir Isaac Newton's house. I want you to do the wheel of awareness around the apple tree where he figured out gravity, because wow. this wheel lets you go between the Newtonian realm, which Isaac Newton figured out, of course, 350 years ago, and the quantum realm, which has been studied for about 100 years. So let's do it around the apple tree. So we did. And the emotional experience of being there with Susan and and all of her uh, colleagues there around the apple tree to pay homage to Sir Isaac and say, look, Isaac, what you did, amazing. We couldn't drive cars, fly airplanes without it. Fantastic. And you'd probably be so happy to know there's another realm because even inside of his birth house right there, Mm -hmm. there's a quote where he says, I can predict the behavior of large objects basically but I cannot predict the madness of men. And and what he's saying is that the mind 
isn't the same as large objects, even like your body or like a, you know, a planet or a star or an apple so they, or an apple. Exactly. <laughs> or an apple. So here's the amazing thing. You say, well, then what is the mind? Then you say, well, the mind might be an emergent property of energy. This is what I've been writing mm-hmm. about for a long time. And then you go, well, what's energy? And you go, energy is the movement from possibility to actuality. And then you map out these probability spectrums that allow you to perceive and even visualize on this graph what the mind is like and why the wheel of awareness practice drops you from the Newtonian macrostate aspects of energy into the microstate forms, which comes from this plane of possibility. So doing that at Sir Isaac Newton's house was so much fun because these findings from physics, Newton would have loved, I think, even though they go beyond what he discovered for large objects, now that we can look at small things like energy and electrons or photons. Um, and, you know, I even met a wonderful person at the conference in the evening who was telling me about this fantastic study that was just done on quasars showing that at, at the level of quantum, you can show from millions and millions and millions of light years apart that these quasars were coordinated with each other. They were entangled is what the physics term is in a way that reveals that in the quantum realm of reality, what we consider separation because it's what we call spatially distant does not impede relational energy states. So we are deeply interconnected. Not everything is interconnected with everything else, but there are deep interconnections way beyond what the eye can see. And a Newtonian body with Newtonian thinking, which is kind of linear thinking, needs to take a deep breath and say, I can predict airplane flights and what needs to be put into a computer to keep planes from diving down or whatever. I mean, that's all Newtonian stuff. Very, very, very important. When you go to a red light, you're in the Newtonian realm, press on the brakes (laughs) or you will become one with everything, you know? So, that's all good. It's it's it, these realms. It's kind of like swimming, Dave. It's like you know when you do the breaststroke. Sometimes you're mm-hmm. underwater, then you come up for air, and you go down below. No one freaks out and says, "Oh my God, I went for a swim, and there's two realms: there's the air realm, there's the water realm." I'm so confused. We have two realms, and no one's talking about. It. I mean, I was at a conference with a bunch of techs, three thousand people, techies. I would say about one percent knew there were two realms. I went to another conference the week later with 3,000 therapists, about the same number, 3,000 therapists, about 1% knew that there were two realms. So that's 99% of very educated people know that these two realms exist. It's really scary because quantum biology is a defined field where we're looking at quantum effects within the cells and between cells that is being studied with thousands of papers. It's real. And- 99% of people don't know that it's happening, even though it's happening at a micro level in the systems they are studying. Well, exactly. And people, people will roll their eyes when you say the word quantum. And I I get it because it's been been overused. It's overused. And I've been to conferences where it's completely not related to empirical quantum physics studies. Dan, I'm, I'm actually launching a new quantum kale. It's going to be great. No, yeah, good, like, good, good. Well, I'm going to eat it with my quantum spinach. Exactly. People use it like that, and it's insane. So it's insane. So it people really, listening, we're, we're not talking about that stuff. We're talking about real science. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. And this is where you know what's so fun about it. Even you know, like uh, the paper just came out 
showing that sure neurons communicate with each other with neurotransmitters. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. But now there's a new kind of connection that a neuron can communicate to another just by alterations in energy flow patterns without any neurotransmitters. Now, once you're at that level, then you might be able to show that neurons at quite a distance, let's say just even within the skull, if they get entangled electrons that could have gotten coupled up with each other in proximity can then find their way other places. And so there may be levels of even just staying with brain function, brain neurophysiology that have to do with quantum effects that will be studied in the next 10 years, you know? And, and it's so interesting because a linear thinker, there's such an emotional reaction where people get very uncomfortable. Yeah. Even and, and when I work with quantum physicists, some of them will say they're very lonely because when they go to parties, no one wants to hear what they, if they're studying. <laughs> <laughs> you know. it, it seems entirely feasible. And so I, I have a, a small neuroscience uh, institute that's focused on improving cognitive function for execs. And we do some really detailed work and around, okay, you know, this area of Broadman's foci over here, and, and there's little fine tweaks you can make with a 24-channel uh, real-time feedback why couldn't you hypothesize that you are creating quantum entanglement by teaching two neurons across the brain to fire at exactly the same time at the same wavelength? We don't know if they quantum entangle or not because we really can't measure quantum entanglement in neurons, but it seems kind of likely that you could do that. And yeah. we know there's a training effect that I don't. I couldn't tell you that there's neurotransmitters that flip and flop across the brain to allow exactly this thing in the left prefrontal cortex to fire at the same time as something in the hippocampus or whatever. Well, I, I feel like I'm running a dating service, but here's another person you should date is Morton Kringlebach. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So Morton is like you, a computer scientist. And like you, he's really interested in the brain and he's now a, a, a brain scientist at Oxford University, a great guy. Um, and uh, we got a chance to hang out recently and you know, Morton is studying the interconnected nature of the brain, which is called the connectome, right? Yes. The word connectome. Cool. But what he's studying is something that that you'll love. It's called connectome harmonics. Yeah. So it's exactly how you'd want to pursue the question you're asking, which is, could there be distant, spatially separated, in quotes that term, spatially separated areas of the brain that have harmonic um, relationships to each other. And that's what actually Morton is studying with Meg, with the magnetic encephalogram. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what Morton was able to show, which really makes us humble to what, like, for example, fMRI might be able to show blood flow changes. You know, he showed that, you know, let's say you have 50 cycle per second harmonic going on in a particular set of regions that's coupling together. If you increase that to 90, you can go from pain to absolute pleasure utilizing the exact same circuitry depending on the frequency of the harmonic. Wow. And what yeah, and what that tells you is that, boy, if you're just looking at functional MRI or even gross EEGs, you know, you're really not getting what you want to get because you're just saying, you know, A is connected to B. Well, it depends on the harmonic and yeah. probably a lot of ton of other things, obviously. But but this is where we have to be humble in interpreting these brain science reports and you know, what's so interesting to me is that the fundamental concept of integration that we talked about earlier, and I talked to um, Morton about this, seems to be at the root, integration defined as the linkage of differentiated parts. 
because neuroscientists use that term a little differently. But the way we're defining it, this linkage of differentiated parts, if you look at the Smith et al. paper in 2015, that's the number one predictor of well-being in every measure of well-being they could find. So just take a look at that paper. And um, what's so fascinating about it is you can look at the brain and say integration is the base of health. You can look at the body and how it connects with the brain. Integration is the base of health. You can look at, I'm an attachment researcher, how a parent relates to a child or how two lovers relate to each other in a romantic relationship. Integration is the basis of health. You can look at a family, a school, an organization. You can even look at climate change issues and what we're doing as a species. We're too differentiated. And we're assuming that other species are not worthy of respecting their life and integrity. And so we're too differentiated and we're getting chaos and rigidity as a result of the impaired integration. So, so far, integration defined this way, the linkage of differentiated parts of a system seems to be the root basis of well-being. And as a, as a mathematical perspective, this way of defining integration, the linkage of differentiated parts, is the base of optimal self-organization for complex systems. So whether you're going from math or you're going to anthropology, we have a common core integration that you can then trace, let's say in your lab, you can now look at very sophisticated measures of integration and say, is your biohacking intervention creating more integration or less? And if it's creating more, I'll bet you it's gonna be associated with measures of well-being, no matter what you measure. And if it's creating less, I'll bet you it's going to be associated with less integration and less well-being. So this is it's 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 cool because whether you're looking at mental health or medical health or planetary health, um, we have a common scientifically grounded proposal that integration is well-being. And then whatever work we're doing. So like when I work in the government, let's say, and they're asking me questions on where they should go with a policy. I asked them a simple question. I said, is this policy going to promote more integration or less? How does one measure integration? So if I was listening to the show, I'd be like, I think I want more integration in my life and I have no idea if I have any. Yeah, well, there's the, the simple way to start is if there's integration, there's harmony and a sense of well-being. And if there's impaired integration, there's chaos or rigidity. Then you could say, well, where's the integration that I'm trying to measure? Because that's the outcome. So then there are nine domains of integration that we can talk about that I write about in the different oh, books. So these are in awareness in your last book. Well, aware. That, that's or aware. aware. Yeah. yeah, no, no, no worries. So aware deals with the first of nine domains, okay. and that's the domain of the integration of consciousness. So it differentiates the knowing of consciousness called being aware in the hub, and it then differentiates the knowns on the rim and then systematically links them with the movement of a spoke of attention. So that's one whole book devoted to the one of the nine domains of integration. This is why I have a lot of books coming up <laughs> to deal with all the other ones. Um, in the book called Mindsight, I talk about all nine. I actually list them as eight because we thought that would be more appealing, but they're really nine. Um, and I can go through them all day, but let me just say, you can look at um, uh, the laterality of your body for what's called bilateral integration. Uh, you can look at the up and down aspects of your body for vertical integration. You can look at memory integration. So for a lot of people who've had very difficult past experiences in their life, unresolved trauma would be an example of impaired memory integration. You can look at narrative integration, which is how you take those memories and 
not only integrate them, but make sense of them and find meaning in your life. So people who lead a meaningless life, and that's in their words, it's not being judgmental, that's how they feel. I mm -hmm. feel like my life is meaningless. Um, you know, often they've not made sense of their life with a, with a narrative that gives them structure um, and coherence. You then have what's called state integration, where everyone has a different state of mind they can get in, and some of those states can be uh, lasting, <laughs> excuse me, and defining who we are. So in state integration, for example, I might have a child aspect of me, a facet of me, a part of me, a, a, a you know side of me. Those words are all synonyms. You know where this side of me needs to make sure that I'm playful and that I'm uh, you know having an affection in my life. Whereas a more adolescent side might be more sexual and might be more you know rambunctious, and then a more adult side of me might you know, be more studious and serious. And so in a given day, I want to differentiate those different needs I have um, and, you know, ask my wife for a hug or be sexual or be studious. And I recognize that those are three aspects of me, just to give you a simple example. And each day is an, a day of honoring those. Now, it's really hard to be each of those at the same time, mm -hmm. you know, and it gets all messed up. So Here's the beauty of integration. By differentiating the different facets of myself, I can get all of those needs met. Whereas if I just stay in one of those states, like the adult studious state, I say, I don't really need affection. I don't really need to be sexual. No, 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 no. You know, I'm going to write this book or whatever. You know, then I'm actually not integrating. So that's state integration. And then there's something called relational integration, where I can look at my relationships with others, especially close friends and family members, my wife, and say, you know, are we differentiating and linking? And if there's chaos or rigidity in our lives, it's always been as, you know, much as I can say always, you know, that you can find areas of integration. If there's a loss that hasn't been resolved, if there's a trauma that hasn't been talked about, yeah. all sorts of ways where relationships can be impaired that way. And then the final two, are one is called temporal integration, which has to do with time. And that's a really incredibly interesting issue. What is time? Um, but at a deep level, our awareness of change may be what we mean by time and how you integrate uh, your life experience across past, present, future is what we mean by temporal integration, but also realizing that in that hub of the wheel, it's timeless. Mm -hmm. So the quantum realm is free of an arrow of time, a directionality of change and embracing that timelessness of our lives, plus a time bound Newtonian level. It's a little freaky. And so that's what temporal integration is about. And then finally, the last one is identity integration, where you take the reality that you're born into a body that has a differentiated life. You get whatever in your case, it'll be 180 years, you know, to live mm -hmm. in this body. Um, however long we have to live in this body, okay, that's this self you can call an I or a me. But we also have a relational self. That's our connections with other people and the planet. That's a we. And so an integrated identity would honor these differences, me plus we, but put them together into one integrated identity. And then we use the word mwe, M-W-E to remind ourselves that who we are is not a singular noun alone, 
but a plural verb, a me and a we equals a we. Well, if you just heard that and you're saying that was a lot, here's the deal. You want to perform better at everything you do as a human being, which is a major question in the show, the thesis behind Game Changers, you're going to have to hit all nine of those areas. And that is a very, very distilled and eloquent way of describing all the different states or mindsets that you'd have to go through to, well, be highly aware of what you're doing and to kick ass everywhere. And yeah. we've, we've talked, Dan, about the wheel of awareness. And is this something that is on your website or is this something you've got to get aware in order to read? No, you can go to the website, Dr. Dan Siegel, you know, drdansiegel.com and go to uh, resources and then it'll say the wheel. If you've never done any reflective practices before, just start slow. Um, you can get the book aware. It'll walk you through this stuff, but you can hear my voice doing it on the website and you'll walk through some basic practices first and then you'll do a basic wheel, an intermediate wheel, and then the full on wheel. And it's been really rewarding because we've had lots and lots and lots of people do this wheel practice. Um, and the feedback we get is just so beautiful because it's accessible. You just do it. Um, I do it every day. And it has the three research established components of teaching you to focus attention, teaching you to open awareness and teaching you to develop what's called kind intention. And the research is very clear. When you do all three of those things, usually they're in separate practices. Fortunately, in the wheel, they're all in one practice. So you do it every day. Um, you get these incredible changes from the research. What are they? Reduction in stress hormone cortisol, improvement in immune function, optimization of cardiovascular risk factors by lowering blood pressure if it's high, reducing cholesterol levels. Um, inflammation is reduced. The mechanism is by altering the epigenetic molecules on top of the areas of the genome that control inflammation. So literally you'll change epigenetic regulators. And the fifth thing is that your enzyme telomerase will be optimized. And you had Alyssa Eppel on your show. So, you know, you know, the studies that she did with Elizabeth Blackburn, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering this system, are very clear that when you develop the kind of presence that three pillar practices help you develop focus, tension, open awareness, kind attention, you actually optimize telomerase levels. This is the paper Alyssa and I wrote with our colleagues. And when I sent the manuscript to Alyssa, just to make sure I had all the science in, in her area correct, she said, Dan, this is a really great book and everything, but you left something out. Did it go to the printer yet? And as a writer, as you know, Dan, yeah. you, you go, oh my God, another chapter I've got to write. And she goes, no, 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 you don't need to write another chapter. You just need to add something because you left it out. I said, oh, man, what did I leave out? She goes, you need to say it not only optimizes telomerase levels, but with all these factors you're talking about, it slows the aging process. And I said to Alyssa, I said, that's audacious. How can I say these three pillar practices slow the aging process? She goes, because that's what we have shown. And Elizabeth Blackburn and Alyssa Eppel are the world's experts in how to slow the aging process. So yep. I said, OK, I'll do it. I never would have said it on my own because it's wild, but there it is. So it slows the aging process. And addition to all those physiological changes, you actually have a bunch of studies that show that these three pillar practices lead to growth in the brain in a very particular way. And that is you create more integration in the brain by growing areas of the prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus, the corpus callosum, and the connectome becomes more interconnected. So 
the simple way of summarizing all those studies, and so far they show this, all of them, integration of the brain, why is that important? That's the best predictor of well-being. It's the best predictor of how you regulate your emotion, your mood, your attention, your thought, your morality, your relationships. All these things, self-understanding, they're all regulated by integrative fibers. So if you said there was a supplement you could take that would improve your immune system, your cardiovascular system, lower your stress, uh, decrease inflammation and slow the aging process, optimize telomerase levels, integrate your brain, you take it in a heartbeat and you'd invest in the company that made that supplement. And guess what? There is such a thing and it's three pillar practice. And so what's so exciting about the wheel is you get all three that research shows do these things in one practice and you yeah. can just do it and they can do it from my website. And to describe the wheel, if you're going, what the heck is this wheel thing? It's very elegant. As a guy who's been meditating for 20 plus years and went to Tibet to learn meditation from the masters and has a you know, EEG driven meditation clinic. One of the first things you learn in some forms of meditation is, you know, what are you feeling in your toes? What are you feeling in your ankles? You sort of move this up your body and you integrate the things you know are your senses, your taste, your smell, your sight, your hearing. What am I hearing? You just pay extra attention. You, you eat the raisin and just like really focus on the flavor. This is something you'll do at a lot of meditation retreats. And it's to tune you in on those five things. But then to just acknowledge straight up, which is really profound as a UCLA clinical psychiatrist, especially saying there is another sixth sense, which is uh, the interior of the body. Like how's my body feeling? Is there a weirdness in my gut? that's different than any of those other five senses. And that's where I go for intuition. You know, you meet someone at a, at a conference and you're like, there's a weird feeling around you. You're like, you know, maybe I'm not gonna do a deal there because like something's wrong. I don't know what it is, I don't have to know. Uh, or maybe, wow, that is a really profound person. I wanna get to know them better. You, you know it, but you didn't know it necessarily because you smelled them, although maybe you did. And then <laughs> the, the next sense there that I also think is very elegant and Dan, just full compliments to you to say, well, your mental activities, what are you thinking about? There's a whole, the whole Tibetan thing in large part, there's what's going on. You catch a thought, you let it go and, and just be aware of the thoughts and, and all that. So you've built that into the wheel, but what I haven't seen anywhere else is that you also built an interconnectedness, which yeah. is that. How do you just keep going? All right, I got got rid of the physical hardware stuff, and then I went up. What was I thinking about? And then, you know, what am I connected to? And I imagine people. Some of them, I'm connected to God. I'm connected to Mother Nature. I'm connected to you know the stars or whatever. Do you define or do people have a pattern of what they say they're interconnected to in their eighth sense on the wheel? Yeah. Well, you know, this is what's so fun about uh, doing these workshops with so many people and then having them take the microphone and share what their experience was, not give them a questionnaire and say, did you feel this, feel that, feel that? Yeah. No, just have them directly say, this is what I experienced. And so there's a range of things. Um, you know, it's exactly like you're saying when you go through that series and even add the step where you bend the spoke around or stick, stay, keep the spoke in the hub and just explore the hub, people um, have this feeling of, emptiness but fullness some describe god some say love joy this incredible timelessness this expansiveness this sense of infinite possibilities and that seems to correlate as i mentioned with the quantum vacuum now it's very interesting then when you go from that stage to the eighth sense of this interconnection the fourth segment of the rim it's this mind-blowing i think entree into the quantum realm 
where people aren't thinking they're interconnected, they're experiencing it. I mean, yes, they're perceiving it, but even deeper than experiencing it, they're sensing it, you know? And and this is what, you know, brings tears to my eyes now. And even just thinking about it, people who for their lives have felt separate, separate, separate. They do this simple practice and it sets them up for, as you mentioned earlier, a perception that allows a conviction to emerge because now they can conceive with the, you know, have the concept that we are truly interconnected, not because someone told them, because they dropped into that sensation of interconnection that then allowed them to perceive it and then conceive it, right? So what is so interesting from a scientific point of view is, you know, if the plane of possibility on this graph um, is indeed the source of awareness, and it's from this place that you are allowed to have the experiential immersion in the sensation of our interconnectedness, you can say, what is that all about? Well, I'm an acronym nut, and though I'm trained as a scientist, I work with religious leaders and spiritual practitioners. And and the, the acronym for that plane of possibility, which is also called the generator of diversity, is the G-O-D. Mm-hmm. And so far, People who are my colleagues who are religious leaders, I've said, I hope that's not offensive. They go, oh, my God, no. In fact, if anything, that's a bridge between religion and spirituality with science and empirical studies. So this is a really incredible moment where if the generator of diversity, the plane of possibility is, in fact, the source of awareness, love and interconnection, then we're at this place where you say, well, how do I allow, let's say, people into biohacking or students in schools or government officials or people running organizations or teachers or or just any citizen on the planet, how do I allow them to actually make the transition from the Newtonian delusion of our separateness to the reality of our interconnectedness? And I said, look, it's it's a science-based practice called the wheel of awareness, where it just simply puts two ideas together. Integration is health, consciousness needed for change? What if we integrate consciousness? What does that mean? Differentiate the knowing in the hub from the knowns on the rim. What are all the knowns? Then you have the four segments you beautifully mentioned. And let's do it. And amazingly, you could never have meditated a day in your life, or you can run a meditation center or a monastery, and you get these deeply profound shifts. I think, from as a scientist, I think what's going on is it's just inviting people to say, I accept the Newtonian macrostate reality as one realm. And now, even though I didn't know that's what I was about to do, I drop into a deeper realm of an actual reality of event-like verb experiences that I didn't know before. And now I get released from the delusion of separateness. And it's just as we talked about before, there's a relaxing feeling. There's a love, there's people start kind of popping out of their eyes. There's what you might simply call presence that starts arising from the plane of possibility. And then instead of making something happen, you give permission to it to happen. And instead of you know trying to have all these complicated intellectual things that if you just read the neuroscience on contemplation, for example, oh my God, there's so much to try to keep track of or, or any of these fields. But then when you drop down to the basic notion Integration is health, 
integration of consciousness leads to a liberation from the false notion of a separate self. How do you do it? 25 minutes. I do it every day. You could do it every day. And you get the three pillar practices that research supports, leads to all these great biohacking movements towards well-being. That's cool. You integrate your brain. That's cool. But then from the larger human family on earth point of view, wow, now you have people running around living from the plane of possibility, not only in it, when you get to a red light, press on the brakes, and now we're gonna have a different way that these awakened folks with access to this awareness are gonna start interacting in the world from a different place. That's my deepest hope. That is uh, some very uh, profound stuff, Dan, and I think your deepest hope is, uh, is going to happen and I'm, I consider myself really fortunate that I get to uh, hang out with you uh, backstage and at dinner yeah. at the biohacking yeah, conference. Cool. I get to interview and have these conversations because, frankly, I'd love to have this conversation even if you know a quarter million people weren't listening, uh, but they are. And I, I'm hoping uh, that this gives people pause just to say, wait, maybe there's a little bit more going on than I thought. Oh, that's so beautiful. Well, if you think about it, there's a great term that a number of scholars use, and Arthur Zients is the one who taught it to me, but I love the term. It's called pervasive leadership. So take the quarter of a million people that are in their bodies listening to you now or listening to us now. Um, everyone should know that in pervasive leadership, it means you in your life are a leader. Yep. You know, D Dave and I may be the ones chatting now, but we're it's actually all of us chatting. And so you can take these ideas in, take the body you were born into and say, I can be a leader and I'm going to, let's say, whatever, read more or do the wheel or whatever it is that you take on from what Dave and I are talking about as saying, wow, this this can be a shift. This can be a game changer. And then you say with pervasive leadership, you know, we're all leaders, you know, some are doing this function, some are doing that function. We need to get the word out and some people do that and other people don't. You know, at our institute, you know, we all have differentiated roles and we say, good, I'm glad you're doing that because I don't do that. You do that. And, you know, we all we, we share it. So don't get fooled to think that you're not a leader because you are. And in pervasive leadership, that's what we have to inspire people. And imagine this view of the hub of this this plane of possibility. The implication, if that hypothesis is true, and it could be completely wrong, yeah. or it could be partly right, or maybe it could be right. But let's assume for a moment it is right. If it's right, it means that we get lost in these elevated areas I call peaks or plateaus. When you look at the graph in the book, you'll, you'll see what that's about. But basically, we get lost in beliefs, like I'm separate, or a, a Newtonian view, like, oh, all there is is this body and whatever number of years it's going to live, that's it. There's nothing more to me. When you drop beneath those belief systems, which we call plateaus, that for many of us are imprisoning us, you drop beneath that to the spaciousness of the plane, the quality of your life is going to change. And you're going to start not just thinking differently, which will happen, but experiencing life from a different place. And the emails we get to our institute are just some of those tear jerking things when someone, whatever their age, they could be 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years of age, doesn't matter. When they allow this integration of consciousness to happen, 
and they start feeling and then perceiving and then realizing the reality of this interconnected nature, what arises is a sense of love and the sense of incredible peace. And imagine if we could start having the energy of that be our primary driving force, which is integrative, rather than the ways that we get pulled down, you know, with with destructive communication and anger and hatred and the vile way that we dehumanize people and deplantize and and de-animalize all living creatures. So this is a moment to say we're all empowered with pervasive leadership to actually create these changes. And, you know, Christakis and Fowler's beautiful work on connectedness shows that if you start living this way, there are going to be three, four people separated from you that you never meet that are going to be inspired by the leadership you bring to your life. And when you inspire each of those people, what happens? They inspire a few more people. So all of us has a much bigger ripple uh, around us than we ever can see, but you know it's there because every interaction with every human does it, which is uh, which is kind of profound. It's just you, you have to you have to have faith to believe it's there. You have to have faith, and you know you mentioned earlier, Dave, that you pay attention to your gut, and in the wheel practice, you know we go not just on the outside of the body, but deep into the body, including the gut. And I'll just give you a quick story about how, you know, this kind of thing happened with me. I work with a group of MIT professors, Peter Sange and Otto Scharmer, on something we call generative social fields, how to create social relational worlds that are promoting compassion and creativity and kindness. Anyway, we're doing this study. And so part of what we did as a team was we went Um, to study with a teacher named John Milton, who has these lands up in Colorado. And we spent three days, what you would think is alone, but it ends up being all one, where your sense of a separate self kind of dissolves away. And then after a few hours, you just realize you are the trees, you are the wind, you're the sky, you're the clouds, you're the water and the creek. Anyway, it's absolutely beautiful. And it's not a thought you get, it's an experience you have. Okay, so I'm at that retreat, fine, no problem. That's in September. In October, I'm asked to give a keynote address to some whatever, some meeting on science and consciousness. And that was really fun. And then after I talk, a young man gets up and reads a poem that I just think is so beautiful. And his name is Orlando. And I go up to Orlando Villarega and I say, Orlando, I don't know why I'm saying this, but I have a gut feeling. I want you to come April 26th and open a conference with me. I don't know why I'm saying this, but I want you to be there with me and do the opening event with John Milton. You don't know who he is, but he's a guy who teaches about the importance of nature and he studies indigenous cultures. And so Orlando looks at me, and goes, what are you talking about? And I said, well, I'm sure you don't know John Milton, but the three of us will do this opening. He goes, I'm the translator for the Colombian tribe that I brought from Colombia. And they were looking for someplace on earth where they could offer their teachings. And the only place they found was John Milton's lands. And we were there in August for a month. Yeah, that was entirely random for all you exactly. skeptics out there. Yeah, And I yeah. go, you, you gotta be kidding me. And sure enough, when I was there in September, all John would do was talk about the tribe in Orlando. Now, yeah, so when you drop into your gut feeling, I think what you're doing is your head is so filled with Newtonian ways of thinking of nouns that we lose track of the experience in our gut, the sensations in our gut are probably more tuned into this 
relational field. And when I told John Milton this story, I mean, he's laughing his head off because, you know, he talks about the work that we do is called field work, you know, in this field, (laughs) connected stuff. So John will be there, Orlando. And I say this because in schools, we're not taught to do that. You know, we're taught to just pay attention to our head and 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 forget what the gut is saying. And and when you drop into the gut, you say, I don't know. Let me see what my gut is telling me. And, you know, there'd be no reason I would go up to a young 21 year old who just read a poem and have him open up this big conference. You know, why would I do that? But my gut just said, do it. And I said, why? And my gut said, do it. And I said, "Okay." you know, when people learn how to tap into that, you want to meet your soulmate. Uh, that's how you do it. I don't know. I just showed up at this place at this one time. I couldn't tell you why. And there was the person like, that's how some of the strongest relationships happen because you got to be plugged in. I don't know how personal we want to get, but I did have a talk with someone, you you know, and it turns out our stories are almost identical. No kidding. I I met my partner of 35 years. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I I don't know if I ever told it on the air. It's getting to be a long episode, but yeah, Lana and I, it it wasn't, it doesn't seem very coincidental the way we met. We'll we'll just say there was some intention involved Mm -hmm. uh, and things that just are, are unlikely, but, uh, but you know, happened. One last thing before we end the show. You mentioned your conference that I didn't know about. What is it called and when and where is it? Because I'm going to try and go. And I imagine some people who heard this might also decide to join you. Oh, it'll be so wonderful to have a community coming out of that. It's called Timeless Wisdom, Timely Action. And it is April 26, 27, and 28. Um, it's in Marina del Rey, California. It's our annual interpersonal neurobiology conference. And we're going to bring lots of different speakers there who will range from the MIT professors, Otto Sharmer and, and um, Peter Senge. Conda Mason will be there. Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams will be there. John Kabat-Zinn and Jack Kornfield will be there of the mindfulness world. Paul Hawken and climate change. Diane Ackerman. Oh, my God. And go on and on. Tristan Harris, Louis Schwartzberg. There's going to be an amazing collection of different regions to bring together this idea of timeless wisdom. What do we know from deep inner practice and timely action? What do we need to do in the world? So the beginning is a systems change workshop, which please come and do it because these are these are like the world's experts on this issue. And then you'll dive deeply into tying it all together in some beautiful, beautiful uh, presentations. Is there a URL for it? Yeah, if you well, if you go to my website, it's probably the easiest okay. one, which is drdansiegel.com, D-R-D-A-N-S-I-E-G-E-L.com. Go to events, and then you'll see the annual interpersonal neurobiology okay. conference. Click on that, and that'll take you to wherever the registration page is. And it'd be great to see everyone there. And you know, it's a community building event, and uh, there's no time like the present for all of us to do this work together. Well, Dan, I am regretfully choosing not to go because it's my daughter's birthday party that weekend, and I'm not going to miss that. I also said no to speaking on one of Tony Robbins' main stages for my kids' birthdays because priorities. But otherwise, I'll be Good there priorities. next priorities. Okay, well, I'm going to have a personal meeting with you and download uh, the information from the whole experience. So we'll All do right. that. And tell, say happy birthday to your daughter. I will indeed. Dan, thank you for being on Bulletproof Radio. And I appreciate your work in the world. Dave, it's an honor, and I appreciate your work in the world, too. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. 
The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.